Comcast is striking back in response to David Adelman's comments on this show. We have more info on ESPN's stunning deal with Penn Entertainment, and later in the show, we explore the world of ticketing and how it is changing for fans and for teams. It's Thursday, August 10th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. On Tuesday's episode, I interviewed David Edelman, who is, among other things, a partner at Harris Blitzer Entertainment, which owns the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. Edelman is also leading the charge on the 76ers' quest to build a new downtown arena in Philadelphia. On this show, he made the case that their arena will be a world-class facility and that their current one, the Wells Fargo Center, owned by Comcast, is inadequate for the 76ers. Well, Comcast didn't like that, and they got in touch with our newsletter co-author, Eric Fisher, to dispute a number of points Edelman made. Joining me now is Eric Fisher. Welcome, Hello. So how would you describe Comcast's reaction to the Edelman interview? Uh, Charitably, not happy, perhaps more accurately, really pissed uh, that uh, they listened in, with great interest, obviously, in your interview, and you did a great job, and it was a fascinating discussion on a really important topic, but Comcast Spectacore, which, as you correctly indicate, owns and operates the Wells Fargo Center, saw what they see as a lot of misstatements of fact on on what the, David Edelman had to say. So, yeah, let's let's get into some of those. So uh, one one set of disputes, let's say, was around the, uh, the NBA fan right. survey, uh, which Edelman quoted a couple times to say that, hey, you know, the, the Wells Fargo Center is, you know, is lacking, you know, when you compare it to other NBA arenas. So what did you find out? Well, there? well yeah, so I've, I've worked through some sources and I've gotten actually a copy of said uh, fan survey. And it's almost mind numbing in its detail going through point by point in terms of ranking NBA teams based on fan sentiment on a whole bunch of different things in terms of time from the parking lot to your seat, view from your seat, how you feel about the scoreboard, the in-game entertainment, uh, concessions, all these kinds of things. And basically where it all netted out is that the Sixers are middle of the pack. They're, they were ranked 14th in the league in overall fan experience satisfaction, which is about where you would expect them to be. This is a 27-year-old facility, and yes, it's been substantially renovated, but to compare Wells Fargo Center in any context up against a brand new facility like the Chase Center in San Francisco, not really an apples to apples comparison. So, you know, it's about where you would expect a building of that vintage to be. Uh, but again, that's very different than what David Edelman had to say the other day. Right. He pointed out certain categories like their the technology experience where um, where where he said the Wells Fargo Center ranks very low. Uh, you know, I think said 28th out of 30th, maybe. Um, whereas but, you know, I didn't quote the overall, uh, you know, overall score. Um, and so is, is there kind of a. Both sides are right. Sort of. Some uh... of the technology scores were a little lower uh, compared to some of the other uh, arena um, categories. Uh, But the technology piece, this is something where it's it's a little bit of uh, everybody's got a sort of some skin in the game here that that's not strictly an arena thing where some of like the team apps and those kinds of things lie with the team and and certain things are not directly in arena control and lie with the team and vice versa. So there is a little bit of uh, more gray area on some of those tech um pieces, but to sort of say across the board that they were at the bottom or near the bottom, it's just not accurate. 
Yeah, and I think this is obvious enough to our listeners, but I think it's worth calling out that Edelman, to get public support for this new arena, part of that case is saying that the current one is not good enough. Otherwise, right. you know, I mean, he, they say it's not getting public money, but still it's a big thing to build an arena. Um, you know, they could build other things there. So, you know, why do it if if the current one is is just fine? Um, another dispute was around this scheduling right. issue. So Edelman said that Comcast, you know, as is their right, takes something like 200 dates off the calendar for their own purposes. And then the Flyers and the 76ers divvy up what remains. So what did Comcast have to so say So basically the line that that was neither true nor mathematically possible. And a lot of the dispute there sort of lies with how you sort of categorize uh some of the scheduling demands of the NHL and the NBA, that there are your base chunk of regular season games for both the Sixers and the Flyers that have to be played, but also there are a series of preseason dates and then a, an extensive series of playoff holds that got to happen for the spring. Um, and there's different rules between the NHL and the NBA and how those holds have to go. It's really complicated. And again, this is sort of a thing where they're just really just talking past each other. It reminds me a little bit of an early stage of any kind of typical labor negotiation where they're just not even are agreeing on sort of the nature of the universe in which they're trying to divide. Um, they're really sort of talking past each other. And really, it's a fundamental dispute. I mean, the Sixers want their own arena, and Comcast Spectacore says the market they would like to keep them, and the market is not big enough to have two NBA NHL size arenas. That's that's it. That's the basic dispute, one versus two. And both have certain validity to it, uh, but to sort of cast all of this in all of this other window dressing and wrapping, it kind of obscures that basic one versus two dispute. Right. And, and, and you know, I pointed out Edelman's incentives here. The, you know, Comcast obviously has their own incentives too. They want to keep, right. you know, what might be their, their most lucrative tenant. Uh, so, yeah. The, Certainly given the nature of the team right now, the Flyers are still rebuilding and the Sixers are yeah. further along in their contending trajectory. Um, anything else that we should know just in terms of, um, you know, how, how Comcast characterized their take here. Yeah, and the, the renovation itself that, um, as you had uh, David Edelman on the other day, he was sort of framing this whole $400 million uh, renovation as just cosmetic. Uh, Comcast Spectre has a very different view on this, and they feel like they really sort of blow the building almost out to the studs, so to speak, that with the exception of your base foundation and steel and concrete, that essentially all of your finishes and anything sort of consumer or team facing is essentially new. And so there's a very different sort of definitional divide as to how deep and extensive that renovation really is and was. Um, moreover, uh, Comcast Spectacore says that there's a whole other part to this coming, that they've got an additional development project on that South Philly sports complex planned. We're going to hear more about that probably later this year. And that is yet another piece that they say really kind of changes the whole dynamic and how you think about the arena and it's in current and future potential. Yeah. And I think this, we're, we're going to be in, he said, she said mode for yeah a little bit. Like here. I said, with my labor <laughs> yeah. analogy, deadlines, force actions, you know, we're still eight years out on, on the lease here. So that deadline pressure really hasn't come together, but eventually they are going to need to get to some sort of commonality where they're actually talking about, the same issues in, in the same universe that they're trying to divide.
now I'm gonna we're gonna make a hard okay. pivot over to uh, uh, to the ESPN Pen deal. So as we covered last episode, um, and as you you can see pretty much in any sports media publication right now, ESPN is uh, launching a sports book, or sort of Pen is rebranding its sports book into ESPN Bet, in obviously in a massive deal with ESPN. Um, new details are still coming out about this. So uh, what have we learned just in the last, you know, you know, 12-ish hours, 24 hours perhaps about, uh, about this deal? So there was the base announcement, and now we've got a round of uh, earnings calls. Penn had an earnings call, and uh, Disney's about to, or, you know, by the time this podcast goes out, that call will have happened. So they're making their rounds, but there was a really interesting supplemental piece, um, an investor deck that was filed by Penn with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission that really sort of lays out its entire vision and rationale for the deal. A lot of interesting numbers in there, but probably the most noteworthy one that jumped out to me was that this this deal is really sort of predicated on ESPN bet getting 20% of the U.S. online sports betting market by 2027. That is a really, really ambitious uh, goal for them to have. Uh, Barstool Sportsbook in, in that prior iteration with Penn was nowhere near that figure. And DraftKings and FanDuel by themselves control more than 70% of the market. You fold in Caesars and BetMGM, that collective market share goes over 90. So everybody else, you know, all the other dozens of sports books out there, they're fighting for table scraps. And right now, Penn, before with Barstool, now with ESPN, is in that table scrap group. And to get out of that and into this whole other thing where they're going to be potentially a solid third in the market behind DraftKings and FanDuel, really, really ambitious goal. And, and you sort of fold that in with all of the money, the stock warrants, the marketing support, you know, the literal, you know, billions of dollars, you know, $2 billion plus deal that we're talking about here. Uh, Penn Entertainment's really hanging himself out there and really kind of you know, it's a, perhaps a little bit of an overstatement to say that they're hinging their very survival on this deal, uh, but they've got more than half of their entire market cap tied up in this deal. So it's got to work for them. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And, and you know, that is the, the ESPN name and everything that comes with it. And of course, it's not just the name. Uh, we'll get to that in a sec. But uh, but yeah, this, this has to work. As you said, um, otherwise... I don't know what happens to Penn. I'm not going to say they're going to go under, but you know they would have to be a much smaller version of. But and again, of we've seen a lot of other sports books fold because of this market share dominance and this sort of duopoly that we've had in the market. And just in the last couple of years, you know, Maxim Bet, Fubo, the Score, most recently Fox Bet. The list goes on and on. That these again, these table scrap players, you know, just trying to build a business when you're, you know, getting one, two, maybe three percent of the market. It's tough to scale. Yeah, and it's hugely expensive to to have a sports book. You know, I've got to deal with all sorts of legal fees. You have Cost to of user acquisition, acquisition is massively high. Yeah, absolutely. And there's not necessarily a whole lot that separates you from DraftKings, FanDuel. Right. You know, you you can bet on a football game. You can bet on a baseball game. You you can you can do all the things you expect to do, except um, in your yeah, state. Everything else. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. The, the largest state is still uh, still not brought it in. Neither is the second largest. Uh, I think California will eventually. Um, 
but uh, but not not anytime soon. But I have to think that uh, ESPN's counting on that. Yeah, that's really and, that's part of it. Yes, it, it didn't. The deck specifically didn't mention you know California by name or any specific state by name per se. Uh, but that expansion of the market as the market expands and, and big states like Texas and Florida and California fully come online that getting to that 20% is going to be predicated on ESPN bet getting an over index market share of that new territory. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, and that's just going to be a big TBD yep. too. Um, yeah. With, with Penn's future very much on the line for that. Eric Fisher, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Up next, we take a look at the ticketing market with Stu Halberg of Logitix. This is one of those parts of the sports world that we largely take for granted, but it's of tremendous importance to teams and leagues, both because they need to get people in seats as seamlessly as possible, but also because technological capabilities and fan expectations are changing and teams need to keep up. That conversation is next. I am joined now by Stu Halberg, CEO of Logitix. Welcome, Stu. Thanks, Owen. Appreciate you having me. So just to start us off, what is Logitix and who do you work with? Yeah, uh, Logitix, a ticketing technology solution, tagline, ticketing technology that draws a crowd, um, kind of the uh, elevator pitch. We help our partners sell more of their ticket inventory for more money. Um, predominantly work with rights holders, a term that we loosely consider Teams, artists, venues, promoters, any you know, owner or content creator of a live event, soon to be not only live events, but also you know, things like the metaverse. Uh, but we also create technology and services for professional resellers, primary ticketing platforms, secondary ticketing platforms, really anyone in the ecosystem that touches the ticket in a live event lifecycle. And how much of that is the sports world for you? Uh, I'd say about two thirds, and it's uh, probably slowly moving in the direction of of being a little bit more diverse. Um, we know we have made some pretty significance in the performing arts sector. Um, concerts, I think, are, are getting the majority of the the public news uh, between Taylor Swift and Bruce Springsteen and The Cure and all the fun things that we'll probably get into. Uh, professional sports, specifically with with collegiate sports coming afterwards, has really led the trend in creating and innovating around ticketing technology, but other live events are, are not far behind. So I, I was going to ask you, you know, how the ticket market has evolved over the last, say, decade. Is it just the story of things getting more digital? That's a big part of it. Um, I was with the Florida Panthers working in their front office at the time when there was really the proliferation of the move from PDF or hard stock tickets to mobile and digital tickets. Uh, a lot of people were freaked out. A lot of people thought that there was no way that people were going to access their their ticket on their phone. Um, you know, I think that became pervasive pretty quickly. Uh, but in the move to digitalizing all types of e-commerce, yeah, it's all about getting on the internet, eliminating the risk that's associated with paper tickets, uh, information, data sharing, uh, all that has led to somewhat of a digital revolution of the space. So other than now when you're going into a stadium or an arena, you pull out your phone instead of your paper ticket, what other changes has this, has the fact that it's all on your phone basically now, what has that led to? Uh, information and knowledge, right? You know, you get, I mean, everything's interconnected. CRM systems are, are outstanding today. Uh, the venue knows exactly who bought the ticket, 
Uh, they can send them an email, what to expect when you arrive. Uh, you're starting to see technology around ingress and egress, you know, based on your seat, based on a collection of ticket scanners, where should you enter the building? Where should you park? What's the easiest way to find concessions? Can you order from your seat? How do you interact uh, with the live event? So you see a lot with, with sports gambling and, and in arena gambling. So everything now is, is really being done at the phone. Uh, you're starting to see even some of the larger you know, ticketing marketplaces game time. I don't think they even have a desktop app right now. If they do, they're just starting to work on it. You can only buy tickets from their mobile app. Um, so uh, you're really starting to see everything being at the palm of your hands and your phone. So there's obviously the a very large secondary ticket market that used to be, you know, you're you're walking up to a game and there's a bunch of people trying to sell you tickets. You still see those people, but uh, now there's kind of a whole new dimension to it. So let's get into that. Who is the modern day scalper? Yeah. Oh, first, and and I like this question because. I'm still shocked in today's kind of woke age where the Cleveland Indians have to change their name. Uh, you know, the Washington football team, there's a pancake uh, mix company that had to change their name that we can go around like Ticketmaster just using that word scalper often. Yeah, um, so it's, it's of, a fair point. I guess. <laughs> yeah. So um, in a previous iteration of, of our organization before the rebrand during COVID, uh, we had a slide in a pitch deck that really talked about the evolution from scalper to broker to reseller to now what we call a distribution partner. And, um, you know, even just the word broker, I think has been misused. When I think of a broker, I think of, you know, somebody, an entity bringing a buyer and a seller of an asset together. In reality, in today's ecosystem, that's probably more like a stub hub. You know, they're the marketplace where that transaction is happening. Um, a scalper or a broker is really someone who comes uh, into possession of supply and they're able to, you know, get the buyer that way. So, not a lot has changed other than they have become professionalized. Uh, we work with a lot of professional sellers and resellers, uh, but instead of, you know, unofficial relationships with teams, they're actually, you know, economically sharing data sharing partnerships with teams, with venues, with promoters. Um, they've become professionalized through, through different dis distribution and uh, dynamic pricing technology. Um, oftentimes, because of that separation from the partner directly, there's really good access to data. Uh, and you're really starting to see the integration around you know, what you consider a legacy scalper with teams and really trying to figure out how to partner together with the end goal of getting inventory to the hands of the consumer. It is really interesting. I haven't really thought about this before, how the the ticket reseller is, I mean, just because now often it's through something like StubHub or SeatGeek, where it's like, okay, the, you know, some some tickets are available. Why don't we pick those up? You don't really know who the, the seller is. Whereas, you know, back in the day, you, you'd be walking up to a game like, I don't have tickets, but okay, these guys have some. It feels a little bit illicit. It's in cash. They're not really supposed to be there. You feel like you're not really supposed to be doing it. But now it feels a lot cleaner, even though it's the exact same thing. Are those ticket resellers who buy up a bunch of tickets and, you know, maybe try to make up or definitely try to make a profit off of them? Are they a problem in this ecosystem or is everyone actually okay with this? Um, so I think the only part that is potentially a problem if you were to pull an audience is that they provide a service that the team cannot do themselves, right? So when, when you think about what a ticket seller or reseller does that a team does not do well, 
They don't really have access to free market data. They do not have the ability to distribute tickets to the StubHubs and SeatGeeks. Most teams have some type of exclusive relationship with the primary ticketing company like Ticketmaster. And there's also both technical and knowledge limitations around how to dynamically price tickets. And so this, this truly this arm's length relationship that ticket resellers have, they're only thinking about the individual buyer. They don't have to think about the season ticket subscriber or a premium seat holder that a team has to think about with respect to uh, pricing strategy. So there's this benefit that professional resellers have that teams might not ever have. We're starting to see that blend. You saw Major League Baseball assign official relationships with traditional secondary marketplaces like SeatGeek and StubHub. Um, so you are starting to see the balance of those uh, abilities and technologies move back to the team. So that's really the only problem. Um, you know, dynamic pricing gets a bad rap. I can tell you, you know, our system is making tens of thousands of automated and manual price changes per day. About two thirds of those are actually dynamically pricing tickets down. So I don't think that the dynamic pricing is an issue. I'm a big fan of open distribution of inventory. In very few industries, do you see product only being for sale on a single shelf? Uh, you know, consumers are very much creatures of habit. They're going to shop where they want their inventory. So if you're a team, why the hell not have your tickets out there? So I think there is a lot of value in what some of these technology providers and sellers provide. Um, but from a team's perspective, there's this consistent and constant evaluation of, do I build it or do I continue to work with a partner? And most of the time, there's obviously a cost to that. Yeah, I mean, the maybe I'd call him a ticket speculator. I see the main issue I see there um, is not with you know, your random weekday baseball game where there's going to be seats and you know maybe you can get a good deal on the secondary market. Maybe the better deal is just through the team. You can kind of figure it out. It's more like the Super Bowl where it's a 100% chance that it will sell out. And there's also a 100% chance that people will be willing to put up crazy amounts of money for it. So, you know, maybe the the team sells it for whatever, $1,000, $500, but those get snapped up in an instant, you know, the moment they go on sale and they get snapped up by people who are not looking to go to the game, they're looking to actually sell that for $2,000, $5,000. That seems like maybe not ideal for for the league and for the team, but maybe it's fine if they can use this digital system to get a cut. Yeah, look, I think, you know, your bifurcation of a high demand versus low demand event is definitely interesting. In reality, there's very few Super Bowls. There's very few Taylor Swift tours. Um, I don't know the right answer with Taylor Swift. I feel bad for Ticketmaster and all the publicity, bad press they're getting related to Taylor Swift because there is no right answer. For for all intents and purposes, they actually did a phenomenal job with Taylor. Um, Bruce was a little bit more complex with the pricing, but with respect to Taylor Swift, you think about even, you know, in the New York, New Jersey area, you've got a, a stadium that seats 70,000 people. She's playing three nights. You've got 200,000 available seats, but you've got 7 million people who want to attend. Like, what is the solution when you have demand that so far exceeds supply? It shouldn't just be free market and may the most expensive person willing to, to spend the money because then you start to rule out the true fans and you start to erode some of that. Um, it's a very complex irrational, volatile ecosystem. Um, you know, one of the things that I always say is the word fan is short for fanatic, which implies that they're just irrational consumers willing to do things that you would not expect or that the data would not support. Um, but they're making these decisions that, you know, you just try to deal with. It's a very vocal 
small group that's driving a lot of the innovation in the industry. Um, so for the high demand events, I still believe that there is a service that ticket selling performs up until a point where there becomes technology that traditional and legacy arbitrage resellers, mostly bots, which I do think there is a problem with bots, uh, are not able to get their hands on ticket. And just to wrap us up here, is there any innovation or problem to solve that we should be looking toward for the future of ticketing? Um, yes, I think that I'm a big proponent. Logitech is a big proponent of giving control back to the rights holder, allowing them to make decisions on what to do with their inventory and to do that at a granular scale. Right now, Ticketmaster, Access, some of the other larger primaries can have rules like you can't transfer your tickets, and that effectively all but kills resale, right? If you can't transfer a ticket, who's going to sell and buy? Um, things like, can you resell it? If so, where can you resell it? For how much money? Um, to who does the owner have to go? I think there is a, a long series of rules that you should be able to place on a ticket uh, that can be enforced. Right now, that technology does not exist. There's companies out there like True Tickets who are building rules engine on top of a Tessitura ticket, which you know we're keeping an eye on. Um, but the best technology can be enforcement of a set of rules that the rights holder wants to impose on their ticket. It's their inventory. It's their product. Let them decide what the hell gets done with it. All right. Fascinating stuff. Stu Halberg, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Appreciate it, Owen. Thank you. That is it for today. Subscribe if you have not already. We have great interviews and the biggest news in this space coming at you every weekday. Also, for those of you who have been to a game at the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia, let us know which characterization feels more accurate to you between Comcast's and David Edelman's. Hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Owen Poindexter, and our show account is FOS underscore today. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow.